Thank you, Jim. Good morning. It's wonderful to see my church family here this morning. I'm uh, taking a trip tomorrow to see my mom, but this bag is not, I'm not already packed for this. This actually has something to do with our message this morning. And I want to show you guys some things. Uh, first of all, you've, most of you have seen this. This is the Sword of the Spirit trophy plaque. All those Bible Bowl kids who get the Sword of the Spirit, they have their name commemorated on this plaque. And I always tell them, you know, it's kids, when you get this, it's there till Jesus returns. You'll be hanging there till Jesus returns. Caitlin and Elijah Travers are the last two, but we can go back on the list all the way back, and there's actually another one. I'll show you this. And, of course, we also have on display out here in our, uh, we have puppet team awards. And this is just one of them. We have uh, some trophies that were won. These particular ones were won in 2010. And uh, uh, it's fun to look at these things, isn't it, when we think about it. So I'm going to put this up here. And then I have a few other things here. I've got a certificate. This, is, this one's framed. It says, this is to certify that William Sullivan has been chosen by the faculty of the Communication Arts Departments of Oral Roberts University, outstanding student in telecommunication. And I could tell you which year, if you could guess, 77, 78. So. And then there's some uh, other things, like uh, this is a plaque in appreciation to assistant coach Sullivan for the state championship basketball team of 1986-87, uh, where I was assistant coach. I'm putting all these here because I know you're all going to want to peruse these after the service. Here's a couple other things. This is ORU Intramural All-Star, 1974-75. Huh? And this is uh, All-Stars 1977. This one's for basketball. This one's for football, flag football. It wasn't tackle. But these, these are actually uh, way more impressive than anything I've shown you. These are medals, and these are... Uh, I, don't, I don't know what they all are. There's a bronze star on here. Tom Buck identified that for me. If you really want to know what they are, ask my father-in-law because these are the medals that he earned during his 28-year career in the Air Force. Pretty impressive, really. And we have all kinds of stuff in our house. I call it the Herb Jordan Wall of Fame. And uh, so if you come visit us, you can look at some of these. These are some patches, including 100 B-52 missions in Vietnam on here. And then uh, SAC, which is Strategic Air Command Combat Competition, 1966. So these are some of the things that I wanted you to see this morning. And there's a reason that I'm showing you these things, and it's not to, uh, to honor me. or we, I would like to honor our puppet team. It's always good to honor them and, and our Bible Bowl kids. And we do things like that, don't we? We do things like that, and you think about why. Why do we do trophies, plaques, certificates, medals, things like that? Why do we do things like that? Why do we give them? Why do we display them? Why do we keep them? So that, in years to come, we and others can remember what we've accomplished. They're given to us to honor our accomplishments, aren't they? The U.S. Air Force felt it right to honor Colonel Herbert R. Jordan for what he did for our country. So they marked that honor with all these medals, these plaques, these certificates, these patches. ORU intramurals, on a lesser level definitely, felt it right to honor my meager accomplishments on the basketball floor and the football field with these trophies and plaques. And the Com Arts Department 
thought it was appropriate to honor my academic accomplishments as a student. The organizers of the Puppet Festival felt it appropriate to honor our puppet team for the things that they accomplished. And those are all good things. Emanuel Christian School believed it was appropriate to honor my small contribution to a state championship basketball team. For us, these trophies are symbols of remembrances of our accomplishments. But did you realize that we don't just get trophies? When we are in Christ, we are trophies. Think about that. We're going to flesh that out. We're not trophies because of our own accomplishments, but we are trophies because of God's accomplishments. We'll see that in a moment as we get into our main text for the day. We are trophies of the only one who actually deserves true honor and glory. And glory that we get is only reflected glory, and that's where we get this little opening illustration of the honors for our puppet team, for my father-in-law, the things that I've received. This breaks down, this little analogy, this little uh, illustration breaks down. That's because we must remember that without him, we can do nothing. Nothing. The only thing, the only one deserving of true honors, trophies, if you will, is the only one who can equip us to do anything worth doing. We remember that apart from Christ, we are like corpses. The Word of God tells us that before we were in Christ, we were dead. It's only because of Jesus' death and his resurrection that we have, as Jim spoke of last week, a living hope. So this Sunday, after Easter Sunday, we're going to explore this theme, and I'm sure you've never heard these two things together, trophies and corpses, okay? We're going to explore this theme. Just as I believe we don't spend enough time preparing for Holy Week and Easter, kind of like we do for Christmas, I also think we move on too quickly from all the amazing truths that we ponder during these three special meetings that we had here at TCF last week. We need to slow down. And we need to not let the death and resurrection of Christ so quickly fade from our rearview mirrors as we're driving away from these events. We need to ponder the implications. We need to ponder the practical consequences of the death and resurrection of Jesus and our being found in him. So let's consider the profound reality that in Christ we are his trophies. We are trophies that he earned on the cross of Jesus. And let's remember that, except for God's merciful intervention, we are nothing but corpses. We are dead. But in Christ, we're former corpses. If you were something, and now you're something else, you're a former something. So we're former corpses. One passage that couldn't possibly be written without the events that we marked last week in Holy Week is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn there, because that's our primary text for today. We see in this passage echoes of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And even more, we see the outworking of these things in the life of those of us who have trusted in Christ for our salvation. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. We're going to begin reading now with verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, 
and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We start this passage with a sobering reality. You were dead. You were dead. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians here in Ephesus. You were dead. There's nothing complicated about this phrase, you were dead. Dead means dead in the original Greek and in the English. It means dead, a corpse. Of course, in this case, we were the walking dead. Sounds like a good name for a TV show about zombies, doesn't it? We were walking around and living in one sense, but we were dead spiritually. Why were we dead? Not because of some brain-altering virus that made us into zombies. We were dead because of sin, because of willfully chosen, heart-destroying sin. That's what we were walking around in, sin. Walking in this means living in it. It means living it out day by day, even wallowing in it regularly, daily, compulsively, offending a holy and righteous God by sinning. Paul tells us that there were two reasons we were living out this dead reality in our sin. One is that we followed the world. The world, let me tell you a secret here. It's not a big secret. If you haven't figured it out by now, you need to figure it out this morning. The world is not our friend. The world is not our friend. James wrote in chapter 4, verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friendship with the world, letting the world's values, letting the world's standards shape us, and influence us and rule us is like cheating on our spouses. That's what James tells us. It's a deep betrayal of the one who paid the price for our sins. So the word is very clear that the world is not our friend. Yet Paul is telling the Ephesians that back before we were in Christ, we were not only friends of the world, but we followed the world. We did what the people in the world do on a regular daily basis, the course of the world, the way they do things, the things the world loves, the things the world does. So that's one reason that Paul tells us we're dead before we're in Christ. The other reason is that there is a very real enemy of our souls. We see him named in other places in Scripture as Satan. Here in Ephesians, he's identified as the prince of the power of the air. Now, we can't ever say, the devil made me do it. We can't say that. We choose to sin freely. 
But the devil and his minions don't make resisting sin any easier. They kind of pile on. Paul tells us that our enemy is at work in the sons of disobedience. That's us. Before Christ, that's us. That's us corpses. But then to reiterate that the enemy can only take advantage of our already existing sinful tendencies, making it harder to resist sin, even as he encourages us to join in, Paul writes this in verse 3, among whom, those sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So it's the passions of our flesh, folks. It's the desires of our body and our mind that cause us to sin. We are without excuse. Can't blame the enemy. Can't blame the world. We are without excuse. Those things don't help. That's what Paul's telling us here too. The world doesn't help. The enemy doesn't help us stay right with Christ. But we were dead sinners. We chose to live among sinners. We chose to walk with sinners. We chose to join in with sinners. And what did that make us? Dead sinners, just like the rest of the world. But there are some important things to note in these very sobering first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul begins by saying, you were dead. Were is past tense, folks. He's writing to Ephesian believers in Christ. If he was writing to unbelievers, he would have said, you are dead. But he said, you were dead in the sins in which we once walked. Again, we see past tense there. These sins in which we once walked. The implication is very clear. We don't walk in those sins anymore. We still sin, yes, but we don't live in them. We don't wallow in them. We're not owned by sin anymore because of what Christ accomplished for us. We'll get to the great turnaround, the great reversal that makes this possible in just a minute. But before Paul got to that, he concluded by telling us about the fate of the kind of people we were, walking corpses. We were, he writes, by nature, children of wrath. Dead sinners, walking corpses is who we were, It's not just what we did. We hear a lot about identity these days, and I identify as this, and I identify as that. Well, this was our identity. We were born that way, freely choosing to continue in it. By nature, our natural disposition was to sin, and we did it regularly, often cheerfully, without anything holding us back. And because of this, we were doomed to wrath doomed to experience the righteous wrath of God, a completely holy God who cannot look on sin. We deserved his wrath, eternal punishment and separation from him. In these first three verses in Ephesians, if they aren't sobering enough, we could spend time in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. We're not going to read that now, but if you want to, You want to reinforce what we just heard in these first three verses of Ephesians, you can go and look that up later. There, Paul outlines the reality of a sin-sick world, and he tells us that those apart from Christ are without excuse. We see the echoes of that passage here in Ephesians 2, including the promise of God's wrath. Thankfully, though, 
And here's where we get to the good news part. You know, there's always got to be bad news before there's good news. It's not good news without the bad news. Here's where we get to the good news part. Paul didn't end there. We see next in our passage this morning two of the most hopeful, promising, glorious words in Scripture. It's the great reversal, folks. It's the big turnaround. But God, but God, we were dead in our sins. But God, we followed the course of this world. But God, we lived in the passions of our flesh. But God, we carried out the desires of the body and the mind. But God, we were by nature children of wrath. But God, it's like when a battle is taking place and all hope is lost and the cavalry arrives, huh? You've seen those movies? Those cowboy movies, just in the nick of time to save the day, right? Or it's like when in the Lord of the Rings, all is doomed and death seems certain, but Aragorn arrives to win the battle and eventually takes his throne as the returning king. It's like when Aslan is killed by the white witch. It seems like the end is near, but then he's alive again, and he comes to reverse the tide of the battle. Except here's the truth, folks. It's so much better than those illustrations. It's so much better. But God, but God, God who is rich in mercy, God because he loves us. But what about God? What did he do? Yes, he's rich in mercy. Yes, he loves us. But that alone means nothing for our our eternal state unless he does something. He has to do something. Remember, we were dead. That's what Scripture tells us. We were dead. We were walking dead. We were corpses. So what did God do to accomplish this great reversal? This great reversal that started even when we were still dead in our sins, as we read in verse 4. He didn't save us because of, but rather in spite of what he saw in us. He saw in us at that time when we were walking corpses, He saw obedient slaves to sin. Yet, he made us alive. He made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. It was a resurrection, folks. It was a resurrection. Jesus died and then was resurrected, raised from the dead, so we could be changed from walking corpses into living servants of the King. I don't know about you, that's incredibly good news, folks. I'm a former corpse who's walking around today because of what Jesus did for me in Christ because of Jesus conquering sin and death on the cross. Jesus was raised from the dead and we are alive in him. And we see the first of two great declarations in this passage saying the same thing that flesh out how incredibly grateful we need to be to our Savior by grace you have been saved. We see that twice in this passage. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, undeserved, unmerited, nothing that we can do on our own to earn. By grace, a gift of God, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on the cross, an act of mercy, keeping us from experiencing the punishment that we all deserved. But in addition to that, by the grace of God, He made us alive in Him. Didn't we just spend 
three services last week thinking about these things. Last week on Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday. But yet here we see Paul again reminding the Ephesians and reminding us of what Jesus' death and resurrection means for us in a very real, very practical way. But you know what? Still there's more. Reminds me of those commercials you see, right? Still there's more. How much would you pay? Wait, there's more. Not only has God seen, to, seen fit to take out on Jesus his wrath against sin, not only has God seen fit to make our dead selves, our walking corpses, alive again in Christ, but according to verse 6, he's seated us in the heavenly places with him, again in Christ. This is where we see the rich biblical realities in stories like the Chronicles of Narnia. The Pevensey children, you remember, were delivered from death by Aslan, yet Aslan makes them kings and queens. Believers are positioned spiritually in heaven where Christ is. They are no longer mere earthlings. Their citizenship is in heaven. But why? Why would God do this? Well, we've already answered that question in part. In verse 4, right after the big reversal, but God, we read that God is rich in mercy, and we read that God loved us. These are clearly reasons why God would do this. Why would God take such sinful, rebellious creatures and change them from walking corpses to former corpses? But we see a larger purpose, actually, behind all of this in verse 7. And this is where our opening illustration begins to make sense when we think about these trophies and these plaques that we looked at, when we think about uh, certificates and things that we give one another to honor the things that we have done so that in the years to come we and others can remember what was accomplished. Verse 7 answers the big part of the why question. Why would God do this? Yes, he's rich in mercy. Yes, he loves us. But verse 7 answers it more fully because after it tells us that he made us alive in Christ, it says, so that. Verse 7 begins with, so that. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And this is where we get to the trophy idea, folks. We are, all of us today who are in Christ, trophies of God's grace. We are trophies of God's grace. All of us, in one way or another, are trophies of his grace. Now, in our finite existence, it would be useless boasting and unwarranted pride to boast in ourselves. That's why other people give us trophies, right? What would you think of a person who made a trophy for himself? Wow, what an ego, huh? That's what we'd think. But there's only one who truly deserves honor and glory for anything. There's only one infinite, perfect, holy, righteous, merciful, and gracious God who deserves all the praise and all the glory. Again, the only glory we ever get is reflected glory, reflected off of his majesty. I've heard it said, and I've heard it especially in the context of sports, it ain't bragging if you can do it. But in our understanding that without him we can do nothing, yes, for us, even if you can do it, it's still bragging. Our only posture when we receive praise for anything should be humility 
and gratitude for anything that we accomplish. The word asks rhetorically, what do you have that you did not receive? However, with God, all those things are different because God is the one and only true creator, the only one who can brag about anything and have it be absolutely and completely true and appropriate. So bragging's not a good look for us, but it's a right look for God. God will display us as trophies of his grace for all eternity. Picture a heavenly trophy room that never ends. And you and your loved ones who are in Christ are in that display room. The words show in verse 7 that he, God, might show, it says, can also mean display, just like you display a trophy. God's going to be bragging in the best possible sense of the word and the only possible sense that's righteous, which in our context is a negative, but for him it's just the truth. God's going to be bragging for eternity about his amazing grace and what he accomplished for us on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. I can imagine God singing to us, my amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you. Can you imagine God singing that to us throughout eternity? And so to emphasize and reinforce this reality that it's all of God, he's totally and exclusively worthy of our honor and glory, we read the next few verses, again highlighting God's amazing grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. This was one of the very first passages that I latched onto as a new believer in Christ when I was a teenager to help explain my newfound faith. I'd never heard this verse in my 16 years growing up in the Catholic Church, but it's so clear we're saved by grace, not by anything we do. Saved by grace through faith. That's a phrase that captures an incredibly important doctrine of our mutual faith in Christ. It's God's grace that saves us. It's our faith that responds, and we can only respond. We can't even initiate. We can only respond to his grace, receiving that grace, and in turn being saved. And in case we forgot already, remember what Paul tells us. We were dead. We were corpses, by nature children of wrath. So saved is easy to understand in this context. We're saved from sin and death and God's wrath. So I understand saved, And at this point in my life, I understood grace, I thought, and I understand faith. But as a new believer, I initially struggled with this part of the passage because next, emphasizing that it's all God and not us, we read, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God. But to what is the word this referring? This is what I struggled with. Is it reminding us that this grace is not our own doing? Or is the this referring to the word faith? Now, in a group like this, I'm sure none of this is going to come as a deep revelation to most of you, but this was my thought process as a young believer in Christ. By classic definition, of course, grace means unmerited favor. You can't deserve it. So I thought, well, that this couldn't be meaning grace. It couldn't mean I could earn grace. That's kind of a contradiction in term. So is this word this referring to the word faith? Well, I was saved in a stream of Christianity that seemed to think that faith was something you worked up, 
something that we were entirely responsible for. So I started by thinking, well, even though I thought I understood that grace was unmerited, that the word this must refer to the grace, and maybe it was just a redundancy. You know, Paul does that sometimes. He repeats things in different ways to make a point. But as I grew in Christ, and I began to study the word for myself for the first time in my life, I came to realize that though we may have a measure of responsibility to appropriate faith for ourselves, faith too, like grace, is in fact a gift, especially saving faith. So I came to think that the this must refer to the entire idea of grace through faith. And since then, I've learned from some of our Greek scholars around here, whose uh, initials are Jim Garrett, that the Greek construction